Welcome to season two of Access and Opportunity. In this episode, I'm excited to speak with Julia Collins about how to disrupt a century-old industry. Julia has been challenging the status quo in the food and restaurant industry since 2001. She's worked with top-tier hospitality groups such as Danny Myers Union Square Hospitality, helping to uplift brands such as Shake Shack and Maialino. In 2010, she partnered with friends to create the popular restaurant chain and food truck, Mexicu, in New York City. Since that great accomplishment, she co-founded Zoom, a technology-enabled food company with a mission to make healthy food fast and accessible. And recently, she set a new record for the most funding raised by any female founder or any African-American founder in history. And that's just the beginning. Let's get started. Julia Collins, thank you so much for being with us on Access and Opportunity. It's great to be here. Let's start from the beginning. Zoom Pizza. Where did the idea come from? Why you and pizza? Like, (laughs) where did this come from? By the year 2050, there'll be 9.7 billion people living on the planet. And I spend most of my time thinking about what everyone's going to eat. As you're probably aware, if we continue to produce, distribute, and consume food in the way that we are now, we will literally destroy our planet. And so we have to think about how to move forward and how to create a better future for food. So that's why food. Why pizza? Pizza is a huge industry. It's a $125 billion a year industry globally. And we knew that if we could make a company starting in the pizza world, that we could pivot that into something much larger. But what made you think that you and your team would be able to bring another pizza product to the market that would be differentiated, that would capture people's attention, and would make people want to buy it. There are great pizza products that are already out there. Are there? I would push back on that. The $125 billion pizza market is dominated by the same four incumbents. And without saying their names, you know who they are. Yes. And what I would say is the food that they're delivering is not as tasty as it should be. It's certainly not as healthy as it should be. And in some cases, it's not even as affordable as it could be. So the founding principle of Zoom was to think about how to use technology to create tasty, healthy, affordable food for our customers. And we do that in a couple of interesting ways. One of them is this idea that we can cook food while it's being delivered to the customer. It's a special technology called cooking on route, and that was the very first piece of technology that we began to work on at Zoom Pizza. So just for a playbook point for our listeners, because that's one of the things we're famous for with this podcast, is giving people a clear playbook of how to do it. So you said pizza, the market is known, and how do we disrupt it? And it's through technology and doing something cheaper, faster, and better than it's already been done. Is That's that... right. The question is, how could we rewrite all of the rules? Okay. How could we really use first principles thinking and create a company that met all of the needs of our customers and our employees? How could we use things like automation, artificial intelligence, or machine learning to really create better products for our customers and better jobs for our employees? So tell us quickly how you test marketed this. How did you put together the first robot and talk about the robot because we've talked about you use technology, but we didn't say what it was. So for our listeners who don't know Zoom Pizza, talk about what it was, how did you test it, and when did you know you had something? (laughs) 
Good question. So there's so many different places where technology has been brought to bear against this problem at Zoom Pizza. In the case of the robots, what we were really focused on was eliminating tasks, not jobs, eliminating tasks that were boring, that were repetitive, or that were unsafe for humans. Jobs like sticking your hand in and out of an 800-degree pizza oven, you know, a thousand times a day. That's not a good task for a human being even if the job of being a chef is great for a human being. So we really thought about automation as a way to improve the quality of work that people were doing in our company. And so we took not just a robotic approach, we took what we call a cobotic approach, humans and robots collaborating together in this manufacturing setting. Uh So humans and robots standing side by side in this production process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you said, I'm not trying to take your job. I need to figure out a way to make your job easier and to make it more interesting. So let me start there with innovation. And that way you could come up with the theme around coexistence. And that's exactly right, Carla. That's the conversation that we need to be having around automation Mm -hmm. is to remember the point is to improve the quality of human life on Earth, Mm -hmm. to improve the health of the planet. That's the point. Mm -hmm. It's not just another strategy for adding a couple of bips to your bottom line. That's not the point. Mm -hmm. There are many ways to do that. And in our case, because of the use of automation, we're able to actually unlock human potential. And so somebody who was spending eight hours of her day in front of a hot pizza oven is now doing something like learning data science or learning computer programming or working in a customer service function, things that are much more human-centered. Good example. So how did you test it? (laughs) I remember the very first Halloween that we delivered pizza. I never knew that Halloween was actually the biggest pizza holiday on the calendar, bigger than any other holiday. And boy, were we slammed. I saw the orders coming in. We have this big dashboard in the middle of the office. And all of the sudden, you could see the orders increasing at an increasing rate. And we looked at each other around the office, and everyone realized what we had to do. We jumped in our cars and started delivering pizza. Actually, even Even my parents came into the office that day to deliver pizza. It was all hands on deck. We could barely get the pizza out enough out on time. And at the end of that night, we finished service about 10 p.m., 10.30 p.m. We all looked at each other and we knew we had something. Outstanding. Outstanding. We knew we had something. Well, let's talk about your approach to get your first money. So had you sold the pizzas, created the prototype, put some points on the board before you actually went out to get outside money? You know, I've been an entrepreneur for for quite some time now, and I've had different experiences with every company that I founded. You know, with my Mexico businesses, I literally bootstrapped them off of a credit card. And not even like an American Express Platinum. (laughs) I'm talking about like a Visa credit card with an $18,000 credit limit. So I've had that experience. In the case of Zoom Pizza, you know, we had the very good fortune of being able to meet investors that believed in us from the very beginning before we had ever even sold a pizza. Oh, okay. So really at the idea stage and at the concept stage. And I think the reason why it worked, and I have to say that if you believe in bad luck, you have to believe in good luck too. So I understand that part of it is luck. But there was this real element of timing. People understood that there was a big problem with the way that Mm -hmm. food was being made, delivered, and consumed. And that if the right people could get on the job and the right people could solve the problem, that there would be a huge opportunity there. 
And so early on, I think people believed in us as the people who were going to solve the problem. So you had a network that uh, you were exposed to that sort of knew you, knew your interests, knew you as a problem solver, if you will, or your team. And that gave you an early opportunity for a sale. Yes. The different thing about starting Zoom at this point in my life was that I had been working you know, I'm, I'm almost 40 years old now. I had been working for a little while, and I had had the ability to actually build a network. Okay. You know, when I was in my earlier 30s, it was much more difficult to get even that, you know, what they call the soft intro. Yes. And so, um, you know, there's... And mind you, I also went to Stanford Business School, so yes. I, I had been exposed really broadly. But there is this element of even just, you know, how do you get that first meeting? How do you get, how do you get the right. first person to say yes to you? And that's why I think the work that people like Frida Kapoor is doing is so, is so important. You know, we have to be able to broaden the conversation and make sure that more people are able to get introductions, mm-hmm. you know, to, to funding. In my case, um, I was lucky that I had a little bit of a network that I could start to tap. Yeah, so would you say to someone who did not have your exposure between Harvard undergrad, Stanford Business School, growing up in San Francisco where you were around it, would you say to someone that you should think critically about the network of people that you do know and use them to introduce you to other people, give them a reason to do that, but be aggressive about trying to connect the dots around your network? Because everybody knows somebody. I think the word aggressive is really important, and I recognize that it's not easy. So behind that, that ability to be aggressive and be sort of, you know, to, to put yourself out there, you have to have confidence. So the thing I'd say first is actually to cultivate a faith in yourself that's unshakable. Okay. okay. You know, by really believing in yourself right now. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what you need before you even walk in the door to make your first pitch. You have to get right with yourself. Yes. Okay. And what would you say about then, how would you tell them to get that pipeline of meetings that they need to need to have? Because you generally don't get the yes on the first ask. You generally don't. So um, it is all about the way that you follow up. You know, it is this community of Silicon Valley is very small. Um, everyone is connected in one way or another. Sometimes somebody passes on your deal, not because it's not a great deal, but because it just doesn't really fit into what they're working on. But if you follow up in the right way, there's a high likelihood that they'll make another introduction. Mm-hmm. And most people, if you're pushy enough, and I'm quite pushy, <laughs> will, even if they give you a no, they might introduce you to just one more person. And if you do the math on that and you iterate that a couple of times, you can really broadly expand your network pretty quickly. Let's talk a little bit about the, the fundraising process. Sure. Um, because, you know, you've said before and other people have said that, you know, people tend to value you around the size of the raise. So how do you feel about that? I mean, I think it's so important to have access to capital because, you know, cash is the fuel of your business. So I don't discount the importance. But fundamentally, Carla, I don't value myself based on the valuation of my company. Mm-hmm. I don't measure my worth based on the size of my last funding round. I'm really focused on the impact that I'm having with the company that I'm building. That's what's important to me. That's what matters. And it sounds like you raise discreetly. You raise for what you need in order to get to the, that next uh, measure of growth, if you will, as opposed to uh, let me get a big number. I think that's the smart thing to do, and yeah. I think that's what we should be doing. Okay. 
Okay. I've heard it said that uh, a great entrepreneur is really a collection of his or her experiences. So can you talk a little bit about your work with Danny Meyer, your, your starting Mexicue, all of that, how it really has informed what you're doing now at Zoom? Absolutely. So I knew that I wanted to be in the food business really early on. But, um, you know, my family is very achievement oriented and, and most people in my family were, you know, doctors or lawyers. And that's a blessing. I recognize that. But as the as the little girl who wanted to kind of do her own thing, it was hard to find my way. And the reason why Danny Meyer is so important to me is because he really gave me my first shot in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, he hired me as an MBA intern out of Stanford Business School and just gave me a little foot in the door. And I cannot claim any credit for all of the successes that his businesses have had, but I can claim credit for being smart enough to get myself an internship with Danny because after that, I really had the confidence that I needed to keep going. Um, the same you know, was true of Mexico in a lot of ways. It was just that first opportunity to, to really be at the very beginning, to work as a founder in a company and to have the opportunity to see that through. Um, and I'm really proud that Mexico is still in operation yes, and yes. doing well um, because we really bootstrapped that business. Wow. Yeah. that That's amazing. So talk a little bit about your path. We, we talked a little bit about Danny Meyer, but you've done some other great things that obviously have led you to this place right now. That's right. I've always had a love affair with this world of food. But, you know, my path was a little bit circuitous. I started as a biomedical engineer at ah. Harvard and found my way. You know, Okay, biomedical and pizza. <laughs> All right, you have to connect those dots, there Julia. Was a step, there was a step in between. So when I graduated from Stanford Business School, I had the opportunity to to move to the south of Italy, and I went to live on a water buffalo farm. And the reason why I did that is because I understood about the culture in the south of Italy. It had this component that I thought was really beautiful, which is you eat very well even if you don't have a lot of money. Mm. And I thought, well, if I can go to this place where people are living into their 80s and 90s with low incidences of diabetes and obesity, but people are eating with pleasure and joy, if I can go there, maybe I'll learn something. And so it was really that experience living on a water buffalo farm in the south of Italy that was the first little sort of kernel that started to develop in my mind around what would it look like if I built the food company of the future. Wow. And so now you can see how it's a little bit of a natural development to go from that experience to moving back to the States and eventually co-founding a pizza How did company. you even find the place? How did you hear about it? I happened to be at a dinner party with a woman, and I just hit it off with her, and it happened that she... She owned a water buffalo farm in the south of Italy. This amazing woman named Cecilia Baratta. And at the by the end of dinner, she said, Julia, you will come and you will stay with me. Wow. She sounds like she was a divine appointment. I won't go there, but wow. Right wow. Talk to us about why this problem in food. You started off this conversation by saying, I wanted to solve the problem. But we all know there are lots of problems with respect to the way food is grown, the way it's distributed, how it's packaged. So why this problem? You know, the reason why food matters so much to me is because my experience of being human, my experience of expressing love, my experience of feeling safe and well is always grounded around this this idea of sharing food with people. It's just the oh, way grew, I grew up. It's yeah. just the way my grandparents who came from West Virginia and South Carolina to the Bay Area really built the foundation of our family. We always gathered around the table. And so I'm called to it. Yeah. I'm called to it more strongly than I'm called to anything else. Wow. 
Outstanding. So talk about how you built your team, because that's one of the things that I think entrepreneurs have a tough time with is getting the right people in the right seats at the right time. Mm -hmm. So how did you gain that skill or did you have a team to help you? I think the first thing to understand is that the needs of the organization change pretty dramatically at each milestone. Mm -hmm. And the folks that you need to bring in at the very beginning are not necessarily going to be the same folks that are going to be there for the second, third, or fourth turn of the crank. In some cases, they are. There are some people that are a perfect fit for all stages, maybe folks that are, you know, have had some experience in startups. But there are many people who are going to come in early and just work like crazy and really believe in your vision. Um, but that aren't necessarily going to be there when it's time to, to meet the third or fourth milestone. So that's the first thing is understanding and getting comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah, because we're loyal folks, especially entrepreneurs of color. That's And right. women tend to be loyal. And if you were in there with me in the beginning, I'm having a hard time letting you go. That's right. But the idea is that you have to solve for the needs of the organization even ahead of each individual. Very well put. What I will say, though, Carla, is I have an interest in the individual success of everyone that comes to work for me. And so even if I need to coach somebody out of the organization, I'm still committed to that person. Mm -hmm. That means they can still call me, they can still email me, and if they've done a great job, they can even rely on me to help them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the patent process, because that's something that I think that's unique to, to your business. Not every business needs a patent in order to continue to advance. So how was that process? You know, I never dreamed that I would be an inventor. <laughs> that wasn't something that I knew was going to happen for me in my life. So on an emotional level, it was very exciting to be kind of in this world of intellectual property. On a strategic level, though, what I'll say is that, you know, our ability to protect our inventions, I think, um, was very, very important for Zoom Pizza. And um, to some degree, you know, our ability to achieve such a favorable position in the marketplace um, is directly related to to the amount of really strong intellectual property we were able mm -hmm. to develop very early on. Yes. How did you get help around that? If you had no experience on intellectual property, how did you know that you needed to get the thing protected? You know, I think, the, yeah, that's right. The first question is, how do I even know that I need to get this thing protected? If anybody's listening, if you think that you have something that's a great invention, get it protected, I'm telling mm -hmm. you right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, you have to seek out good counsel. Mm -hmm. And there are many people that work in this world. You know, we were lucky to have really great counsel on the IP side and, you know, on the trademark side. Ah, outstanding. Yeah. So seek counsel. Outstanding. Now, let's talk a little bit about how you raise a visibility in the marketplace. You have a great product. You have a patented technology. How do you get people to buy it? How do you? How does that spread? The important thing is to have a really good product first and foremost, um, because at the end of the day, you know the experience that your customers have with your product is what is going to determine the way that they talk about you. Mm -hmm. And so, the best kind of marketing, in my opinion, is the marketing that comes from happy customers. So you can never sell short the importance of really fine tuning your product. I think there's an idea in Silicon Valley that you know if you're if you're not totally embarrassed by your first prototype, then you probably shipped too late. In my world, in the world of food, that isn't true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's got to taste good. It's got to be on time. And it really needs to be safe and healthy. Mm -hmm. So um, really the importance to me is in building a great product and letting that experience with the product be the thing that propels you forward. And have you been able to advance at the time that you want it to adv advance, uh, meaning 
where you thought you would be six months and then 12 months and 18 months, have you been ahead of that? Were you right on time with that because you carefully controlled the growth or were there impediments and things that had you grow slower than you would have expected? I have experienced a little bit of all of those things. There are times when I've sped through milestones with my team, um, you know, at, at, at many of the companies that I've founded and, and thought, my goodness, how did we get here so fast? And there are other times where you have a surprise in the technology or in the operations or even in your ability to scale your team and you think, oh, my goodness, we are so far behind. Um, But, you know, I think while it's very important to run a rigorous planning process, particularly as an early stage company, you have to be able to pivot and be flexible Uh and allow yourself the ability to correct to do that kind of course correction so that you wind up ultimately where you need to be. Yeah. And did you have any major disappointments along the way from when you started to to now? And how did you overcome that? Because resilience is a big deal <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur. This is something I talk about a lot with my friends that are founders, especially my female friends that are founders. And I think... Um, you know, almost on a daily basis, you can find things to uh-huh. celebrate, but you can also find things that just haven't gone the way that you wanted them to go. For me, the times that I feel the most disappointed are when I've let down an individual. Most mm-hmm. other things can correct themselves. Mm-hmm. If you had a bad day in the pizza delivery market, you can fix it and get on track the next day. If your mm-hmm. orders were running late, you can add drivers and you'll be right back on time even within the hour. But if you let down an individual, if there's an employee that's underperforming, if you haven't been your best self in a meeting, those are the things that really get to you or those are the things that get to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's so important to have a really good network of yeah. people that can help lift you back up, that will be honest with you, but that can help lift you back up when you're feeling like a little bit down. Okay. What would you say to investors who say that it's hard to find great opportunities that have been founded by people of color and or women? Because when you think about it, the fact that women get less than 5% of the VC dollars, people of color get less than 2%, you have to say to yourself that there must be some lack of knowledge in the marketplace of the fact that these kinds of entrepreneurs exist. So what would you say to the investment community about availing themselves or teaching themselves or getting exposure to this group of entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think you're being kind, actually. And the statistics are even worse when you think about black women. It's less than 0.2% of businesses with a black woman at the helm or a black female founder are getting venture funding Mm -hmm. or even part of venture activity. So, you know, one thing I do say to people is it's unlikely that you're going to develop a skill in the boardroom that you haven't already practiced in your everyday life. So take a look at your social network and see who's there. Mm-hmm. Do you have a black female friend? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have somebody that you go to church with who's another color? Do you have a queer person in your life? Do you have people of different ages or different physical abilities? Right. And if you don't, that's the first thing to fix. Mm-hmm. And then this issue that it's hard to find. Everything that we're doing in the valley is hard. We're shooting for the moon every day. Mm-hmm. So the fact that something's hard means nothing. We have every technology available to us to solve some of the most. We're sending people to Mars. 
There's nothing about finding talented black and female and people of color uh, that is harder than many of the other things that they're working on. It's just a question of effort. Mm-hmm. And now is the time to put forth that effort. I could not agree more. Given the the demographic shift in this country, and given the the uh, loyalty that is found that is undisputable in communities of color, especially around brands. That's right. Yeah, I That's could not right. agree more. All right, Miss Julia. I could talk to you for another three hours, no question about it. I have so many questions, but uh, it's time for us to get to the lightning round now, which is a tradition that we have started on Access and Opportunity, and it's really an opportunity for our listeners to get to know a little bit more about the woman. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, rapid fire, and you answer in three words or less. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Favorite thing about San Francisco? The views. Favorite book or magazine? Homegoing. City or the countryside? City. Favorite pizza topping? Cheese. Your next business venture you're most excited about? Regenerative farming. Oh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Text or talking? Text. Last thing you downloaded? Your podcast. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Favorite vacation destination? The south of Italy. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Oprah. What's one word that you'd like to describe your legacy? Kind. Julia Collins, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. All righty, Julia. (laughs) We did it, girl. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. I'm Carla Harris, and we'll be back soon with another conversation about access and opportunity.